Hello, and welcome to Utopia Road. My name is Pete Smith. I'm the host of this podcast of stories and interviews. Today, right now, I'm going to offer you chapter two of The Distance Traveled in One Day. And there is an A-side and a flip side to this particular story. I'll give you the A-side, then I'll take a breather. Or you can take a breather. And then I'll offer you the flip side before getting on to chapter three. If you like what you hear, spread the word. If you'd like to get in touch with any thoughts, suggestions, please do. You can reach us via email at utopiaroadpictures at gmail.com or you can send us a voice message right to the podcast. Hope you're doing okay in this unique time. Uh, Interesting all the time. Changes everywhere. Anyway, I look forward to... uh, connecting with you again soon and I hope you enjoy this chapter of A Distance Travel Being One. The Distance Traveled in One Day, Chapter Two, The A-Side. There's a Greek fellow, Herodotus is his name, who wrote a book about his travels entitled The Histories. He wrote the book sometime in and around the year 426, in a time that we measure going backwards, calling it before Christ or before the Common Era. Like Ibn Battuta, who penned only one book, it seems it was the same for Herodotus. His reason for writing the account was to try and explain, to explore, what had gone down with the Greeks winning a war against a much larger Persian army a bunch of years before. Cicero called Herodotus the father of history, while Plutarch referred to him as the father of lies. And so it goes with reviews. Sometimes you get the bear, and sometimes the bear gets you. It's a busy account, the history. While he hangs the story on figuring out the happenings of the war, he takes us all over the place, into boudoirs with plenty of nakedness, and murder in the streets, and at one point relates the story of a dolphin saving a popular singer, Orion, from drowning. There are tangents that have him falling into people and places and events, not knowing for sure what the outcome will be. In a book called Confessions of a Mask, by a man named Yukio Mishima, a coming-of-age story with plenty of roots, vines, and twists, he talks about those who plan a trip in such detail that the trip itself is little more than completing a tour of the map they've already drawn, that the trip's ostensibly over before it begins. More to do with confirmation than wonder, or awe, mystery, learning, fear, and maybe a little untangling. Well, I left the tangle of the two guys from my hometown in Lisbon, Portugal, and stuck out a thumb heading into the interior of the country. I had no real destination other than somewhere down the road, had no idea who I'd meet in the adventure, and was just going with the flow. I got picked up by a socks salesman in a shiny white van. As soon as I got into his vehicle, he lit up a Galois, a strong French cigarette, if you don't know, with a very distinct and powerful odor. Now, I'm not a smoker, but inhaling that first cloud of secondhand smoke has always given me a little lift for some reason. After that, doesn't do much for me, but I didn't really care about smoke or smoking back then. It was a different time. The man kept apologizing to me as we made business stops along the way. Well, I had no problem with it. I smiled, nodded my head. I mean, where was I going? All was good with me. 
Sometimes I'd help him hump boxes into the stores. Other times, when he'd disappear into a place didn't require my assistance, I'd take a wander around. The pace was easy. No stakes or expectations, and it was a nice day. My mother, before I left, suggested I take along a little notepad and pencil for the journey, so I might draw a picture or two for someone when spoken language broke down or wasn't available, or just to keep some notes. At one point early on in the zigzag of Portugal with the sock salesman, at a snag as to where I was actually from, I pulled my little notebook out, flipped to page one, and drew a very crude map of Canada. Then I started to add some pretty bad drawings in various locations on the map of moose and wolves and Canada geese and mountains, uh, the CN Target in there, fishing boats, walruses and seals and the like. Oh, there were rivers on it too, prominent towns and cities where Barry was located. I, I even drew where I went to high school. It, it, the drawing kind of got away on me and was a very busy little map, a bit of a mess really, uh, realizing I needed a larger palette to score my point. To give things a broader perspective, I turned to page two of the booklet and there I drew another map. And this time I took on the whole world. It was pretty out of whack really with Ireland twice the size of Australia, Russia, a long thin bubble at the top of the world and well really I ran out of room for most of Asia and so on and so forth. The man seemed content with my artwork, nodding and smiling with every new addition to the map, especially when I drew us in his van on a road in Portugal. Really like that, really hit the enjoyment spot for him. We had a couple of near-drive-off-the-road experiences a few times as he was looking over at the, where I was pointing on my various maps, but he, he'd correct things quickly. He was a pretty good driver, but he seemed genuinely curious about it all. I couldn't be sure what information he was taking in, but it passed the time peacefully, and it got us worked up to laughing our fool's heads off from time to time. In a town called Mora, a village of about 3,000 people some halfway to the Spanish border, he dropped me off. We shook hands, and he gave me a pair of executive-length black hose and some escudos for helping him out. Now, I tried to decline, but his insistence bordered on violence, so I took the handful of cash and the socks, we hugged, and that was it. It was a very good first experience on my journey. So I now stood in the middle of Mora, a town I'd never heard of, never thought of, knew nothing about five hours earlier. The day was familiar, sunshine, blue sky. I was whoever I was in that moment, a, a collection of samples, I suppose, from a life learned 6,000 miles from where I stood. But where I was in relation to all of that in this place, I, I did not know. I walked into a general store. The smell was foreign to me. The must was different. The dry goods, uh, the clothing on a rack, the shape of the bread, the language, the people... Not only hadn't I been here before, but I felt the need to make an adjustment. A desire welled up in me to take time to pay attention to the world, starting with smell. There's a writer who lives in Vancouver Island in Canada named Essie Adudjan, and she wrote in her story, Washington Black, Be faithful to what you see and not what you are supposed to see. We are born with sight, but not identification of what we're seeing. The early work by the tutors is to label uh, everything, being rewarded sometimes for getting it right. We look, we're told what it is, then commit uh, the information to memory or not. But I wonder what's forsaken in that journey. Is faithful seeing out the window? Is wonder removed? Is it possible to untangle the way we see the world, to unlearn, to learn again? 
to sense it like we don't know it at all, learn it differently, like we did when we were small, like it was always a first experience, back when we didn't have much of a clue. A fellow brushed past me on his way out the door and knocked me free of my reverie. I walked deeper into the place, traveled slowly up and down aisles, looking at everything, sometimes holding things up to the light, and if nobody was in the aisle, putting whatever it was I was holding up to my nose for a good deep smell. I eventually came to a shelf of canned goods and the like and discovered something imported from Braville called Pasta de Mendoime. It turned out to be peanut butter, very different than the squirrel and craft I was used to back home, but it was still tasty. So I bought a loaf of bread, a bottle of Coke, and I found a bench in a square where I ate peanut butter slathered on the hunks of bread and washed it all down with the syrup of Coke. It was perfect. It was different. It hit the spot. There was nobody to say anything about it, except me, and I liked it. So there you go. After lunch, I was back on the road, but didn't catch a lift until late afternoon. I got picked up in a battered, flat, battle-green truck. It looked a little bit like an eager beaver. That's a truck I used during the Second World War, complete with canvas that had holes in it and flapped over the ribs that rose above and over the flatbed. Now, the guy driving had a certain je ne sais quoi look. He shouted, El Wapo! as soon as we clapped eyes on each other. Wasn't sure what that meant, but put it on hold as I took in the who of who this guy was. He was grinning away. His eyes had a kind of wild animal look, and the eyebrows above those eyes were long enough to be woven and tied off with what looked like little red elastics. He had a scraggly beard, longer on one side than the other. He was bald on top of his head, but had really long hair running down below his ears and down onto his back. He was wearing a tight pair of Adidas sports shorts, a white peasant top, and a pair of sleek-looking leather thongs. He also had a broken leg. How it came to be broken, I have no idea. Didn't get to it during our parley. The plaster cast went up from his ankle to the top of his thigh. He had a stick that stuck out the top of the cast, and he used it to scratch his leg every so often, really get in there digging. He also had a cane, and it assisted him with the brake gas and clutch pedals of the eager beaver. It was pretty sketchy, really. But I was in need of a ride, and he was grinning like a madman and gesturing I get in, so I did. The truck took a bit to get going. We chugged back onto the highway, jerked along slowly as he worked his cane on the clutch and used the club of a broken leg on the gas pedal. Steam spit out the engine. Blue smoke came from the tailpipe. Because it took a bit to get the truck going, the blue smoke drifted into the cab and left us both gasping and coughing. Once we did get going, though, the truck could really hum along. There were times, however, when a wind would tear in the open window and blow his long hair across his face, blinding him from seeing the road. I'd sometimes need to grab the wheel to keep us on the straight and narrow. He drank something from a flask and ate a lot of fruit. I had a swig from the flask at one point, but the stuff tasted bitter, so declined other offerings. I did eat some grapes and about six oranges. Spanish oranges are a sweet treat. He shouted above the screaming engine when he spoke, and one of his favorite things to say was the thing he said when he first met me. El guapo! He then run his fingers around his mouth and stick out his tongue, look over at me, smiling a, a dirty man sort of grin. I wasn't sure if he was using a slur or not, but I'd laugh nervously and explain that I was, I was Canadian. That only got him more excited, and he'd yelp, El guapo! 
and lick his lips and touch his face again, look over and smile. It was all kind of creepy. We got into the mountains that separated Spain from Portugal at twilight, and somewhere on a switchback turn his cane snapped in two. He was also pretty loaded from whatever was in the flask, and because of the broken cane was having a real tough time with the pedals. We were taking hairpin turns where I thought it was going to be curtains for us. Well, then night fell, and at one point, because he could no longer operate the pedals properly, indicated for me to get give it a go. So I was down on my hands and knees, taking directions from this madman, using my hands to clutch, brake, and hit the gas. That system didn't last very long, as I figured if I was going to die, it wasn't going to be in the well of an eager beaver war truck shoving down on the gas pedal as we flew off a cliff and out into space. No, no. I hopped back into my seat and looked for a place to get out, but all was darkness and switchback turns. So with me steering and him working the pedals as best he could with his leg-scratching stick, we somehow made it over the mountains, and it was then I saw the lights of a city far off in the distance, lights that gave me hope we might live to fight another day. But before we'd gone too far out of the mountains, the guy who was now bouncing in his seat with excitement pulls the vehicle over onto the shoulder and howls, El Wapo! He then reaches over and grabs my knee in a vice-like grip. From somewhere deep in my inner person, a part that I didn't know was there, I let out my own howl and shouted, Desisto! And I tore his cold hand from my knee and gave it a wrist-snapping fling. Where Desisto came from, I can only think it was a piece of bastardization from my high school Latin, but I'm not sure. He tried again for my knee, but the next two shouts, Desisto! Combined with enough juju to knock over an alley of bowling pins, the man threw up his hands in surrender. I kicked open the door, grabbed my backpack, and jumped out. My parting shot was, And for the record, man, I'm Canadian! Before I could slam the door, he hit the gas, and with stones flying off in all directions from the spinning tires, the door flapping like a flag in a stiff wind, he disappeared into the darkness, leaning on his horn as if to get the final word in on the subject. I found out years later that El Wapo meant beautiful man in Spanish. Not sure what the guy was looking at, but I've never been called that since, though I have been told I have a beautiful nose. But, as with beauty, it is all in the eye of the beholder. So I stood on the shoulder of the highway, shaking a long way from comfortable and a short distance to what felt like heart failure. After a bunch of deep breaths, I looked around. Where was I? Wherever it was included plenty of pitch black. And whatever the lights in the distance were, they were like a mirage. Or, if they were real, they were a long way to walk to get there. The energy that had kept me going through the madness of the mountain drive and the intense El Wapo scene on the side of the road was now leaving me. It ran like sweat down my arms, setting them to tingle. It kept moving slowly to my hands and trickled the length of my fingers, dropping in single drops, and then carried away in the wind. The energy drifted into the air at the top of my head. Now some of it settled in the fabric of my jean jacket. Vehicles whipped past, but there was no way I was going to catch a lift. Not then. Too dark. I was too large a person. So I walked over to the ditch, stepped into the tall grass, found a level enough spot, unrolled my sleeping bag, crawled in, and fell asleep with the sound of cars and trucks tearing along the highway, the last thing I remember.